This week on Developer Voices, we're looking at the future, as we often do, but not the future of programming per se. We're going to talk about how some very well-established ideas in programming are being used to accelerate the bleeding edge of chemistry. My guest this week is Professor Christian Schaffmeister, and he's been working on a new implementation of Common Lisp to speed up the design of nanotechnology. Bits of this at times sound like science fiction, but it's very concrete. The plan is, next year, they're going to be building enzyme-sized machines that are being designed right now in a Jupyter notebook, in a REPL, in Lisp. You have to ask, why Lisp? in this day and age, and we're going to get into that. Lisp still has a few features that more recent languages would struggle to emulate and might do well to emulate. To get there, we're going to have to go back and learn some of the most interesting chemistry I've heard about since school, so we better get cracking. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Christian Schaffmeister. I'm joined today by Professor Christian Schaffmeister. How are you doing, Christian? Great, doing great. Glad to have you here. You are our first professor. Oh. Which uh, which feels very very formal. Normally, uh, we, we have a lot of people on this show who uh, have picked up a lot of knowledge along the way, whereas you're steeped in a particular field, which isn't our usual wheelhouse. It's chemistry. Yeah. And th- yes, indeed. I th- this is so we're going to talk about the language you've been building, but we really have to start with why you needed a language because this is the closest I think we've got to science fiction on this show. Yeah, so um, I've been developing um, something for the last you know thirty years uh, where I want to be able to build machines on a molecular scale. So um, I have gone deep into organic chemistry, and I now teach organic chemistry. And um, we've been developing these molecules that are uh, programmable, that are made out of building blocks, that are uh, like rings. And when we snap them together, it's kind of like Lego. You can make molecules with different shapes and they're complex. And so I I have been developing software since I was 12. I was one of the kids who kind of hung out at Radio Shack and learned (laughs) how to program in basic on a TRS-80. And um, I knew that I wanted to use software to design these molecules and that it would be very complex. And so I've been working towards both of those things in parallel uh, over the last like 30 years. This is very cool. With a different set chipset, that's where I was basically starting off from Radio Shack. We have a similar background. Sure. But, um, but so... But we're not talking like nano. We are talking nanotechnology, but these aren't nanobots. These are different kinds of chemical machines. We are talking about nanotechnology. The things that we build are on the nanometer scale, but this is absolutely from the bottom up. We build things from molecules uh, and build them up, and we know where every atom is in every, in space. Um, and uh, I'm actually a, a Feynman awardee. I think it was in. 2005, you'd have to look that up. But yeah, I have the Feynman Prize. And uh, yeah, I've been funded for nanotechnology in the past. This is cool. This is like, so this is machines at the level of like taking inspiration from enzymes, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's really where we're kind of focused because enzymes are the key technology that I believe human beings need to develop. Uh, those are big molecules that can make other molecules, molecules that can make feedstocks for industry and fuel and take garbage and turn it into useful things and detoxify, you know, uh, pollutants. Uh, all of that can be done by enzymes. We have a whole bunch of them that nature gives us, but they were evolved for the purposes of living things. Uh, there are so many chemical reactions that if we could create enzymes for them, we could solve every material problem that human beings have <laughs> for all time to come. It's it's a fundamental technology that we need to develop. You really see this as uh, like completely changing the world? Absolutely. It's yeah. If we could make molecules that could build other molecules, 
than every problem, every physical material problem we have, we could solve. Somewhere between shrinking chemistry professors down to the nano scale. And that would make us simpler. I don't know about that, but <laughs> the the um, the essence is uh, like a, an enzyme is a molecule that's large. It's got a pocket, and it organizes groups inside of it. So it acts like a little like a little breadboard, like a little circuit. Another molecule will pop into that pocket, and there's a push and pull of electrons. It's like a tiny elect. It is a, the smallest electronic circuit. And it works for just a you know a few um, picoseconds, and a new product emerges, and then another one goes in, and that gets repeated over and over again without the enzyme b- being modified at all. So it is it's it's the essence of life, and we can't do that in a rational sense right now, at all as well as nature has done. Nature has. Uh, millions of these enzymes that it's evolved over, uh, you know, countless millions of years um, that can accelerate many, many reactions. And is this, I'm just trying to understand for the background, right? Is this, you're going to custom make an enzyme that takes some raw materials and builds a, a particular flurry of a molecule. Is it then that you'll have... Is there a larger structure beyond that? Are you going to fill a vial with some enzymes that take raw components and put them at level one and gradually the next enzyme in the chain builds up something more complex until you've got something on the physical scale recognizable as an ob- as a thing? Yeah, you've got it. Um, uh, systems of these could build complex molecules. They can fix, you, you know, here's a, here's a crazy example. Um, one of the theories of aging is that uh, basically sugar, glucose, cross-links proteins outside of our cells in what's called the extracellular matrix and stiffens up the tissue. I mean, um, it, that's known. That actually happens. And um, the, the, the cross-link is called glucosapane. And if we could make a specific little enzyme that could go in there and cleave those cross-links you might be able to cure a lot of diseases of aging. Um, I, I don't know if we turn back the clock, but it's one current hypothesis for how aging happens. That, that basically glucose cross-linking proteins, it's called the Mallard reaction. It's the basis of cooking. And uh, that's what's basically happening to us over 60, 70, 80 years. Right. So if you can make an enzyme that could cleave those cross-links specifically without doing anything else, you might be able to treat a lot of diseases of aging. And what's the timeline on this? Because so we can make these enzymes on a small scale right now. Is that right? We can't design good ones, and it's difficult to make big molecules that can wrap around smaller that can create pockets and wrap around smaller molecules. It's really difficult to do that. But we, if we had the recipe, we'd know we could physically manufacture them. Yeah, one recipe would be based on proteins, and there's a lot of people like writing software to design proteins, like AlphaFold. You've heard of that. Um, uh, Rosetta is a software package that comes out of the University of Washington, David Baker's group. Um, that has been developed over the last thirty years to design proteins. Proteins can do this kind of stuff. Uh, they are difficult to design with. I, I, the, my life's work is to come up with a more engineerable building block set. So proteins are sort of like bead necklaces or charm bracelets. Right. They have, uh, they're a long string. They have uh, little charms on them. And the charms, some of them are really greasy. Some of them love water. And, the, and nature has put them together in a particular order. So they fold up into a, into a, into a, like a ball with little pockets on them, and that's how they uh, that's how they create the pockets that can do the work. That folding process is a grand challenge of science, predicting how proteins fold. Now, uh, uh, the Rosetta and a lot of other people who have worked on 
using software to read, pack the insides of proteins have been tremendously successful. But creating the intricate inside of an enzyme is really difficult to get it exactly right because you have to control where groups are within you know, a tenth of a nanometer. Uh, AlphaFold has been a huge uh, breakthrough in using deep learning to predict the folds of proteins that we don't know the three-dimensional shapes of. I've got a different approach. I thought, let's build building blocks that are just easier to design within the first place. So instead of making a charm bracelet, a bead necklace, let's make little ladder, uh, like rungs of ladders, and then snap mm -hmm. them together through two connections at a time. So you make a bunch of rings that are fused together. You make things that snap together more like Lego than linking uh, you know, beads on a necklace. Right. And then they're easier to design with. And then write software to design them. So your idea is that you're going to have like a, a tray full of different building blocks and then figure out how to assemble them to make interesting enzymes. And this Can is where we we're do. getting into, is it pronounced CANDO, which is a great acronym for Computer Aided Design Nano, I've forgotten the O. Computer Aided Nanostructure Design and Optimization. Right. So we, we're really on the level of CAD software for molecules. Yeah, yeah. I started, I've, I've written this like four times. And every, I started out writing a CAD graphical user interface sort of software. But every time I got something, my students came up with chemistry that it couldn't handle and it required a redesign. And then I settled on, I'm, I'm just going to write a language and build a user interface on top of that. Oh, right. Now, here's where we get into language design. So at what point, at what point did you say this is going, I mean, tell, what point did you say, I'm not going to be able to do it with the existing software that's out there. I need to build something custom. I think I was writing it in small talk at that time. And I'd had, I had a really nice user interface. Uh, and my group figured out how to put what we call functional groups, sort of side chains off of each building block. And the way I was building the molecules just wasn't going to work with that. And so I just scrapped it and started over again. Um, I spent a lot of time writing uh, most like chemistry requires performance. You're always doing things that, on, on lots of atoms that requires writing loops that do intricate things, and you need it to be very fast. So most of my stuff is written in, uh, was written in C++. And then I would hook that into other languages. Uh, for the longest time, I was using Python. But the interop between Python and C++ and managing lifetimes of objects became very troublesome. So I came up with another way, and that's what the current can do and the common Lisp clasp that it's built on, uh, that's where that came from. Now, this is an unusual route, uh, particularly these days, I think, to go, from, um, to go from small talk to common Lisp. What year are we talking when you did this? Uh, probably about 2005, 2006. Okay. That still counts as relatively recent in the grand scheme of things. Why common Lisp? So, I was looking around at the time for a language that would allow exploratory programming. Uh, I knew I needed um, automatic memory management. I needed performance. That was mm. the key thing, performance. And um, I was I had this core of chemistry code that was written in C++. It's about a quarter of a million uh, lines of code at that point. And um, I was, had it all hooked into Python, was running into a lot of trouble. This is back in the Python, you know, b before Python 3. Mm. Um, and was running into a lot of time, trouble maintaining that. And a friend of mine had, was at NASA, and he'd worked a lot with Common Lisp and said, you should check out this language. 
Um, I was using XML a lot for serializing data at the time. So I started getting into this idea of, you know, nested uh, scope uh, in the language. And um, I started implementing a Lisp in my C++ and found that it worked very well with uh, chemistry ideas that I was trying to implement. So I moved on from there. I don't want to monopolize the conversation, so I'm going to pause. <laughs> no, it's your job to monopolize the conversation. But so, what is it about Lisp that lends itself to chemistry, though? I can't quite see that. So it's really easy to express uh, graphs and uh, trees and linear sequences in Lisp with the parentheses. Um, I don't know; it just flowed really well. So I. I had all the C++ code. I was writing a Lisp interpreter and started to write, impl basically implementing my own Lisp. And I didn't go very far and I realized it was crazy to try and implement my own language because uh, I've I developed in a lot of languages. I know how difficult that is, mm -hmm. that is to get that right. So I was, I just looked at, you know, what kind of Lisp implementations were out there. And there's a scheme, there's common Lisp, you know, Emacs is based on Lisp. Yeah. There's a couple of them out there. Uh, but I wanted one that was kind of full-featured, battle-tested, had been used to implement large programming systems. And, you know, like Common Lisp is used in the um, Google Flights. The engine behind that is all implemented oh, in that. Common Lisp. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, Scheme's got this specification that's like 25 pages. Common Lisp has this specification that's like four inches thick. Eh, I'll go with the four inch thick specification. <laughs> Not the decision I would have made just on yeah, those metrics. <laughs> I, 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 I do have a tendency of always taking the hard road on, on things. Um, but you don't become it, a professor if you don't like reading, right? I, I guess, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I there are several implementations of Common Lisp. And one of them is implemented in C. Uh, this is called uh, Embedded Common Lisp, or ECL. ECL. Um, yeah. Much of that is written in Common Lisp itself. It's self-hosting, and it has a lot of C core to do the, you know, to do the lower level stuff. Right. So I just took there. It's a that's a um, a GPL uh, software package. It's got a GPL license on it, so or an LGPL license. So I took the common Lisp code from ECL and just started writing my Lisp interpreter so that it would execute that. And I just kept going and executing more and more of it, and my Lisp turned into a common Lisp implementation. Oh, I see. Okay. I also have good C++ interoperation. So I was doing a lot of C++ template programming, and I implemented something like Boost Python uh, to integrate C++ and the Lisp. And then I integrated the LLVM uh, compiler library, um, exposed that to the Lisp, and then I started writing the backend to generate LLVM IR using the LLVM C++ API. And that's how it all grew. Why, why that step? Because I can see why you need C++ access. Why go into the LLVM part? Performance. Just performance, I, yeah. It, with LLVM, I can get native code compilation. And without that, I would ha always have an interpreter. Right. So you said kind of cannibalized, not cannibalized, but um, stood on the shoulders of an existing common Lisp implementation. Yes, but we, the developer of ECL, um, uh, Daniel, um, is, um, he, you know, we hang out on IRC and we fix bugs in each other's uh, systems because we share a lot of code base. Um, it's a very, uh, it's been great uh, working with that community and, and the larger Common Lisp community as well. So, what circumstances do you think this is the right choice? I mean, if someone else was looking at, if someone else is in your position with a large C++ code base, when would <clears throat> taking your path be a sensible one? 
Um, well, I, I would hook it into a clasp. I think it's, it's the, it's a great tool for exposing C++ code in a high level language that has dynamic memory and a bunch of other features. Um, I've hooked in, uh, DNA sequencing analysis libraries like, uh, CCAN and it's, uh, it's very easy to inter integrate C++ code with CLASP, and that gives you access to all the common Lisp libraries. I would have thought that, I mean, anytime I think of programming in the science world, I think of Python. Are you, are you losing something by moving away from Python in this? Yeah, I, you know, common Lisp, if you take Python code, and you take all the functions, and you just take the parenthesis for the function call, you know, foo, open parenthesis, arguments, close parenthesis, take the name of the function, move it into the, after the first parenthesis, remove the commas, and that's basically Lisp. <laughs> you know, it's it's not that big a change. Then you have all these uh, functions that give you, you know, string handling, file handling, all sorts of stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and you 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 have a full language there. I mean, it's really not that different from working in Python. Uh, it's just that it compiles to native code, and it, it, it's Common Lisp was developed, and it's, it's a standard language. So it has a standard that was developed back in the '80s, and um, it's a forever language. Like the code that I wrote ten years ago in Lisp, I'm using now, and libraries that I use. Some of them have been written over, you know. Deck the last couple of decades, and they there's a large library base of common Lisp that works because the language doesn't need to constantly change. There's a standard, and everyone writes to the standard. There's multiple implementations, so everyone writes code that works on a large number of standards. And it's a very there's a there's a philosophy of writing things properly. Uh, rather than writing them just so that they work or they work now. Yeah, yeah. I um, I gather a lot of software in the science world suffers from that problem. Understandably, yeah. because most science people in the science world aren't primarily programmers, right? They're not. And there's a tendency to write stuff that does what you need to get the paper out, and then it rots. Then it, yeah. it rots and dies. But... I've I got to ask you that question again, because you take... Okay, so there's an argument that you take any programming language and strip the syntax out, and you end up with Lisp, because Lisp is the programming language with almost no syntax. But Python isn't just the syntax and the core library functions. It's this whole ecosystem of science packages, particularly mathematics. Are you missing that in your common Lisp world? You know, some... Absolutely. Um, there is a lot of momentum behind it. But if I, you know, if I started writing this in Python, I would be really bogged down right now with, you know, you can't write loops in Python and expect them to run quickly. And when you write nest, like, we, I work with a lot of three-dimensional uh, data. Mm. You know, like I've got a molecule, it's three-dimensional XYZ coordinates, and I need to put water molecules around it. So I have to do a loop across X, I have to do a loop and wrapped in a loop across Y, wrapped in a loop across Z. I've got like three nested loops. Mm. And then inside of that, I've got it doing something really complicated, like figuring out if a water molecule is overlapping any atoms in my molecule. <laughs> yeah. If you write that in Python, it's going to take an hour to run. In yeah. common Lisp, with a little bit of C++ assistance, it happens in a fraction of a second. Um, I can't, I can't yeah, give yeah. up performance. Time, time is the most valuable thing to me. So I'll invest a lot of time in developing the software if it runs quickly when I need it to. And I'm now running things on large clusters, distributed computing across large clusters that, um, would take years of, uh, time if, when it's run on a single CPU. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Like Python, it's more than fast enough for the average web server. But when you're folding proteins in 3D space, yeah, I can see that every yeah. nanosecond counts. Yeah, right? I, I, I've been around, I've programmed like since I was 12, so more than 40 years. And um, 
you know, all the Python that I wrote back in the in the nineties is gone, dead. You know, when they changed to Python three, I didn't upgrade all those uh, libraries, and it's now gone. So all of that was kind of taken away from me. I don't want that to happen again. So I'm only developing now in in forever languages, languages that are going to be around for till till you know 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now. It's one of the few languages where I could predict the syntax won't change much between now and then. Yeah, and and I I have the rare experience of writing software that's been used for more than 30 years. Before I started graduate school, I wrote a program called Leap, which is kind of the front end for Amber which is the, one of the large academic molecular dynamics packages. Right. It simulates the motions of proteins in DNA in research. And it comes out of the University of California in San Francisco. So I was given the job before I started school to uh, write a front end for it. So it would make it easy for researchers to load in their proteins and set up the calculations to run on this, on this, uh, at the time it was written in Fortran, Fortran software. Um, now it's got the fastest GPU implementation, but my software leap is still being used today. Probably some percentage, significant percentage of the world's biomolecular simulations go through leap every day and have for the last 30 years. That thing was written in C and they've tried to replace it. Uh, like the Amber community has tried to replace it, I think twice and have not succeeded because it does an essential, difficult job really well. The downside is it hasn't been improved very much in 30 years um, because it's difficult for people to get into the way it was written. Well, this So that raises a question of collaboration. You're writing this software in Common Lisp, is again to an audience that's probably, if they know programming at all, probably knows Python. I'm guessing, a team of technically astute chemists. How are you? How are you finding the the user experience, and how are you making it usable for people? We have um, there's really powerful tooling based on uh, Common Lisp. Uh, Tooling software, uh, let me re rephrase that. So there is a software package in Common List called Slime, which works, runs in Emacs. Yep. Unless you connect into a running Common Lisp instance and develop code, it's got an interactive debugger, it's got auto-completion, um, it has everything you want. It's a really blue, beautiful programming environment you know, sort of integrated development environment. It's mm. all text-based working in Emacs. So we fully support Slime. I use it every day. I've got it open right now. <laughs> uh, it's it's one of the most uh, wonderful interactive exploratory programming experiences I think you'll find. Now, I haven't used a lot of modern IDEs for C++ or Python, so maybe I'm talking out of my hat there, but it is a really fluid programming experience. So we have that. We've also developed a Jupyter uh, kernel uh, uh, based yep. in, uh, that, that runs uh, Clasp or CanDo. And um, so it's got widgets for doing uh, displaying molecules and graphs and things okay, like that. So you can open a Jupyter notebook and type in some common Lisp and see your molecule and that kind yep, of thing. Yep, exactly. Well, my my cool. usual development environment is to have, I've got can do running that, um, can do running. I've got a Jupyter notebook instance talking to it. And I've also got slime running in Emacs also talking to it. I'm developing code in slime. I'm seeing the effects, the output in the Jupyter lab environment. And that's how I get my work done. Do you know, if that plays out the way I'm seeing it in my head, I think a lot of modern IDEs and more modern languages would struggle to match that. If you've got the mixture of the interactive programming experience and the live visualization, there aren't many yeah. languages that do that well, assuming I, yours does. That's a good point. I, I really hadn't considered it. Um, 
I'm, I, I was really inspired by the, um, sorry, what is that new Apple language that, um, Swift? Yeah. Swift. So when they first demoed Swift, they had this sort of interactive programming, you know, environment. I, I love that demo. I'm really inspired by, you know, the small talk interactive programming environment. Uh, slime is really great. I, I just, I, I want something where I can be talking to the programming environment, add functions, change everything about it. I want to be able to change class. I need to be able to change class definitions, functions, uh, add, you know, generic functions, uh, that will, um, add new functionality. I want to do all that stuff interactively. And that's what I have with this system. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think to that, I can say, I think Lisp is the only language where I've genuinely felt like I'm having a conversation with the computer. You know, that, that uh, dynamic that, interactive experience. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting uh, way to put it. I hadn't really considered it, but yeah, I, I would agree. It is, okay. it is really, I really enjoy programming in it. Um, that's cool. I, I have to, this is a very nerdy question, but I'm allowed to ask those. I have to ask. So you're looking at doing um, an interactive Lisp with C for the fast bits as bindings. Did you ever consider just doing an Emacs Lisp? Uh, when, it, when I was first getting into Lisp, I was a little confused about what was what. And um, I thought that that would be an option. But it's it doesn't have the native compilation. It's a reference implementation of a language. And so I decided, no, I'm going with a standard. Fair enough. Okay. In that case, let's talk about the um, this performance bridge. So I'm assuming you've got C++ where it needs to be really, really fast. And you've, I'm assuming you're as far as possible, you're in Lisp land for the convenience, interactivity, high level preferred way of programming. Tell me about the bridge and when you know it's time to put something on this side or that side of the bridge. Yeah, now I usually start, I don't know, I've got a really, at this point, I've got an intuitive sense of, of when I really need speed and when I can get away with that. Um, we've, I do all the sort of low-level C++ work in implementing the common Lisp. So I do a lot of C++ development, a lot of C++ template programming, and I think I'm pretty good at it now. Um, we implemented LLVM as the back end so that we can generate native code, and that code runs pretty well, but I still can't implement something in common Lisp and have it run as efficiently as it would if I implemented in C++ because Common Lisp does try and make everything safe and everything's wrapped in our, you know, most of the objects are wrapped in wrappers. So that slows things down. We've now in, implemented a bytecode uh, compiler in CLASP to, to sort of deal with the, the slow compilation of LLVM. Um, which is a great library, by the way. I'm my train of thought is just derailed. Could you reiterate <laughs> the question? So there's there's like you've got Lisp in in programmer space where it's nice, and C in um, computer space where it's fast. Right. Which parts of that go on which side of the line? Profiling. 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 Okay. So because we generate LLVMIR. We can compile everything to LLVMAR down to native code, and it all turns into object files and, you know, basic Unix, ELF, mock sort of um, stuff. So we can profile the common Lisp against the C++ perfectly using perf or using dtrace on the Mac. Mm. And uh, we generate flame charts, and I can see where time is being spent okay. in the code. So it's profiling. Right. How much work was it to get that working? A lot, because it's <laughs> really fussy. Uh, especially the jitted code, um, the the just in time compiled stuff that you know we're generating all the time. 
to get the names accessible for the profiling tools um, had to futz around with a lot. They, they basically, they had to solve the same problem for JavaScript on, on the browsers. So we use those mechanisms once I learned about them. Um, but yeah, we can profile everything on an even uh, level. And then uh, depending on where time is being spent, I will move stuff into C++ if I need to. Okay, so it's manual. But can you do that all while your same process is, is running? Yeah. So yeah, you basically. can take a function that's running too slowly and interactively update it with a C++ definition? Oh. Or interactively compile it to C++ on demand? Or No, no. Changing the C++ code means uh, rebuild of the system. Okay. That takes about five minutes, and then restart everything and reload everything. Um, yeah. Okay. And so this is another reason to keep certain things in Lisp space for the interactive reloading without restarting thing. Yeah. Which and really I, puts me in mind of Crash Bandicoot. Do you remember that video game? Yeah. It was That's very exactly inspirational. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good sales pitch for Lisp back in the day. Yeah. So I, I do most of my development in, in Lisp. And uh, it's only when profiling shows me that I've got a problem that I uh, move it into C++. Okay. Or rejigger it to get things into C++. Okay, then maybe we should talk a bit more about what's good in Lisp space. So what are the poster children features of Lisp? Macros. Are you using the macro system much? Uh, some. Uh, you, you have to use that carefully. It's a powerful, pointy tool. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it, it uh, lets you sort of write your own flavors language um yeah we we do use it it the macro system is is really the basis of lisp all the stuff that makes it really powerful uses the macro system so in that sense we're using it all the time um but writing my own macros that's pretty i don't do that that often okay um what about the reader system uh, that, um, it's a, another powerful tool. I, I have a recent uh, use case for that. Um, we have all of our arrays, we have specialized arrays, so for floats and doubles and integers, uh, where they're just represented in compact um, data in memory. Okay. When I, I need to serialize large, complex data structures to disk and then load them back in for running calculations. We sense. could talk about, you know, the save, lisp, and die thing. Um, but the saving these large vectors, uh, I've, I'm using the lisp printer and reader to dump these complex data structures to disk and then load them back in. And that is fairly slow it's it's like pickle or it's like using json but uh you can have internal references in the data structure so you can build up circular graphs yes yeah yes and that's an absolute necessity for what we have because molecules are graphs yeah like it or not it's cyclical yeah yep yep and so it handles all that uh really well but writing out the arrays was taking a lot of time so i uh, what I did is I just uh, turned this 8-bit data into 6-bit data that's human-readable, you know, just using 6-bit characters. And I write out this stream of characters to represent, you know, the compact array. And I wrote a reader macro that when it detects the reader macro characters, just reads in that 6-bit data and turns it into a 8-bit uh, uh, data structure and memory and took my load times for these things from 10 minutes down to, you know, 30 seconds. Nice. Which must come into play when you're, um, writing C plus plus and having to reboot the world. Mm -hmm. Right. So do you have a, a, do you have a perfect between session thing? Can you, when you're working with Lisp, you end up with this kind of working memory of where you're at. Can you flush that entire thing reliably to disk reboot and bring it back and be exactly where you were yes yeah so one of the really remarkable features of lisp is this idea of save lisp and die 
where you just checkpoint all of them. You, you, you do all your work, you get a, um, your memory all set up to, you load all your files, you get everything set up to do something. And then you say, okay, save all this memory. And then later on, start up the, the common list system, loading that memory and be right back where you left off. Yeah. So I implemented that feature in Clasp and I can load 100 megabytes of, of complex data structures to do a complex design calculation and then save the thing to disk and then start that up again in less than four seconds. That's a rare feature these days, right? Because most programming languages, you can't checkpoint the state of the program. Yeah. How, how much work can. was it to implement that? Um, you have to have a really good understanding of how the memory is laid out uh, and, you know, how with how our garbage collection works. So we support a precise garbage collection. So I know where every pointer is in memory. And so it's just a matter of keeping track of all that stuff, writing it all into a block of memory, dumping that to disk, and then loading that back into memory, and then feeding it back to the garbage collector, which will put it wherever it wants to in memory, and then fixing up all those internal pointers. And that uh, the the memory survives that round trip. Okay. Um, it's pretty complicated and fussy, but it's working. And um, yeah, what else can I say about it? Is it reliable? Um, it, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's working perfectly. Um, if, you know, if one pointer was out of place, it would crash the system within moments. I have a memory test tool that will exhaustively check that every pointer is pointing to a valid object. And that gives me a lot of confidence that everything's fine. What, what, what we can't carry across that are like, it's got to shut down all threads, all but the main thread, and it has to close all file handles. But um, that's not as big a problem as you'd think. Why not? Because I would think. Um, well, for the stuff that I need to do, it's not. I can I can generate a memory image that we start up the Jupyter Lab environment where we load all the packages that we need for Jupyter Lab to run, and then start up Jupyter Lab. And it it you know first time to plot is less than two seconds. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, that makes me think, you mentioned the word threads, and I can't quite see, I can see how you've got a requirement for parallel processing and threading. How does that fit into a hybrid Lisp C++ model? How does that fit? So we have, uh, Common Lisp has a standard. It's also got a, several libraries that have become de facto standards. Like Bordeaux threads is a the de facto standard for creating threads, taking them down, communicating, setting up, you know, locks between them. And we use that to do multi-threaded programming. Built on top of that are convenience libraries like L Parallels, where you can just do a parallel map. You know, Common Lisp has you know, list list um, lists and um, list comprehension, so I can map over a list a mm. list. Blah. Um, <laughs> Classic tongue twister, Lisp and Lisp. Yeah. L parallels, you parallel map over a list. So I can just give it a list of work and it will allocate that to multiple threads and I don't have to think about it. I, okay. th that's what I do. Again, the advantage um, of working mostly in a higher level language. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And when I'm doing that, I'm doing these design calculations I've got a 28 core machine and it's using 26 of them flat out. Uh, I, I, I get like 80, 90% utilization of all the CPUs when I'm doing this design calculations. That must be speeding up the, uh, the high level chemistry task a hell of a lot. Tremendously. Nice, nice. Okay, so zooming back out then, where is this tool going to take the research? Uh, we are starting to design molecules now to be therapeutics and catalysts. Um, we're doing that now. Um, 
that's where we needed to go. So we're, we're, we're essentially there. It has taken a long time. And I really just got the high level design calculations working in the last couple of months. Okay. And so does that put you in a place where, I mean, the people using this, are they saying to themselves, I think this would be a great model. I think this would be a great end zone to build. I think it will have these pieces. Are they working like a Lego designer or are they Monte Carloing a number of things and testing which one works or? The people who are using this are basically me right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. And what are we doing? Let me talk to them. Okay. <laughs> what we're doing is a lot of catalysts have metals at their heart, like metal atoms like right. rhodium and palladium and platinum. And so you say, okay, I got a palladium atom and I want to have groups that attach to it, hold it in place and leave a space near it that another molecule can come in and get, you know, interact with that metal, touch it. Hmm. Uh, so you say, I need a group here. I need a group here and here and here. And then you say, okay, find me a scaffold that can hold those groups in place. And the right. scaffold is built out of our building blocks. And so the software goes and tries lots of different scaffolds. Monte Carlo searched through design space and right. tries to find the ones that can hold the groups in the right constellation. Is this into the realms of things like, I don't know, um, genetic algorithms and that kind of stuff? You can use those as search algorithms. I'm using Monte Carlo. It's the simplest, most powerful, elegant algorithm to do this. You, when, you have a scoring function, you generate possibilities, and you just crank on them as on as many CPUs as you can get your hands on. And possibly to finish off, it's like it's very hard to predict the future. It's very hard to predict time scales. But at what point will we see a clasp designed molecule being made in the lab? As an I'm hoping in the point? in the next um, year. In the next year. Not, not, yeah, not hoping. I'm doing it in the next year. Okay. So the other thing is, um, I've I've got I'm funded by the Department of Defense, and I've got a company that's developing this technology, and we've developed the way to synthesize these molecules. We've made thousands of them in the last three years. Um. Uh, so we can make these molecules very quickly and easily. It takes a day to make any like reasonably sized molecules it takes like one or two days to make them and we're doing this on robots the problem now is which ones do we make <laughs> at my company we're making millions we're putting them together into millions of different configurations essentially at random and then throwing them at the wall to see what sticks right the software those are our hands we can make those things the software is meant to be our eyes so that we could see and predict what to make so i'm bringing that online now right okay so, so the search space is potentially so vast that's the, that's the problem we're solving vast i mean we have in theory we have thousands of building blocks in practice right now we have 40 you put huh. four of those building blocks together in a sequence that's a very small thing but it could be a drug so then you've got 40 to the yeah, 40 to the power of four different shapes that you can make of just that small configuration. Okay, you can either try and make some subset of them and throw them at the wall and see what sticks, or you can try and design them in software. That's what can do is for us to design them. Right. I don't yeah, know how well it's going to work. It's an experiment. Yeah, well, uh, you're, you're in the research business. Someone else can uh, commercialize it. And eventually, we'll, what will we have? Fields of Schaffmeister wheat? Or <laughs> I'm trying to imagine the future that you're heading towards. The, the, the first one is new therapeutics. Right. Dis you know, Medicines. Treat disease. New diagnostics to recognize emerging biological threats. Uh, catalysts that can accelerate reactions and turn cheap starting materials into valuable products. I have to ask then if if you've got something like this biological machine that manufactures drugs or manufactures 
useful things out of raw materials. If we see it, I mean, I'm just trying to think, like, like war zones, for instance, aid, um, outbreaks of viruses. Will these things be able to manufacture things in the field if we find them? Um, this is kind of long-term science fiction yeah, I, stuff. I, 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 well, we're, we're stretching out to the end of the podcast, so give me some this, sci-fi. This is potentially, yes, we can rapidly build these molecules, and if we can rapidly design them, then yes, you could build things in the field. There's a lot of machinery that goes into this. It, it's not the first thing I'm going after. The, it, what we're re- I'm really focused on is the basic capability. Can we design a molecule that does what we want when we want to make new therapeutics, new diagno- molecules that can wrap around proteins and act as diagnostics, or accelerate reactions, or create like channels that can purify single molecules out of mixtures? Like, could we okay. pull lithium out of seawater or uranium out of seawater? You could imagine membranes that could just selectively pass uranium and keep every all the sodium and lithium and potassium in seawater out, and then you could um, pull metals out of seawater, and it would be a lot less environmentally damaging than mining. Yeah, yeah. Plus, presumably, like dealing with pollution as well. Exactly. I yeah. Mean, it, it, when we can build things on the in the the bot in the molecular scale like that with intent with rational design we can solve a lot of our problems that that's where i'm working that's what i'm working towards yeah i can totally see the potential and i'm quite pleased that there's lisp somewhere in that future <laughs> yeah it's it's a fun programming environment to develop this stuff in well i hope it goes Empowerful. well yeah christian thanks very much for telling us all about it chris thank you for taking the time in cheers Thank you, Christian. Now, you'll have only noticed this if you've been watching this episode on YouTube, but throughout that conversation, Christian was drinking coffee out of a lab measuring beaker, which is brilliant. Very on-brand for a chemist. If nanomachines turn out to be the future of Lisp, remember you heard it here first. So please take a moment to like and subscribe, share with a friend, rate, post it to the social, all those good things. I appreciate the feedback and the support. It's also worth saying that this particular episode only happened because Christian got in touch with me and said, I've got an interesting programming topic that you might like. So if you have an interesting programming topic that I might like, my contact details are in the show notes, as always. With that, I will leave you for now. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Christian Schaffmeister. Thanks for listening.